Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. Carol, you were telling me last week a very fascinating story uh, based off of a book that you read, and I would hope you will continue with said story today. Yes. Thank you for everyone joining us this week, as I will be finishing up the story, The Vertical Plane. Yay. A book written by Ken Webster of his paranormal experience claiming to be true involving a series of strange messages received from the 16th century on a BBC microcomputer back in the fall of 1984 and continuing until the spring of 1987. If you have not yet listened to part one from last week, you will thoroughly be confused. (laughs) And for those of you who did listen to last week, get ready as we continue down this rabbit hole. All right. As a short recap, 300 messages were received on Ken Webster's computer sent primarily by a man who calls himself Lucas Wayneman and claims to be from the 16th century in the year 1546. The book itself only has about a third of the total 300 messages received, but I do hear that they're going to have a separate publication by Peter Trindle's son, Richard. Hopefully, it will include all the messages, with the focus being on the language aspect, discussing with linguists and other 16th century experts who will analyze all of them in an effort to prove or disprove their authenticity and time period. Yep. Rosemary Donaghy's review in the Journal of the Society for Research claimed the book as a work of fiction and said the portrayal of 2109 having spelling errors and grammar problems was designed as a clever way to cover any changes in modern day language that might occur during the future decades in which 2109 seems to be from. Well, have you ever noticed how many errors texting causes in our messages today? Well, and the fact that they've shortened down so many words to make it quicker to text. You exactly. Know, it could just be a natural evolution of language. It could. And even right now, voice-to-text technology is worse than just texting for correcting translation of our voice. Right. So I could see how, you know, it's causing problems in the communication. Sure. Ken Webster, in regards to her statement, claims this was not a fair assessment because of several factors. The person who analyzed the text had just a very limited sample, picked only from the messages that were later in the course of conversations and were purposely changed due to Ken and Lucas matching the styles of each other for better understanding and translation. Also, Ken claims and Lucas confirms that 2109 has been able to interfere in their communications and has added changes to their words and punctuation in order to further an agenda or experiment they are doing with Lucas. The second edition of the book has new commentary by Peter Trendel, who unfortunately passed away in 2019. He explained his painstaking review of the language and why he was so interested and believes it could be authentic proof of being from the 16th century. There are also ongoing additions to a list of unknown words, which were not found in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the standard for linguistic reference. Yet, over the last 30-plus years, 
People have now found many of the unknown words in alternate sources and texts. which really? no- Yes, which now prove the words were being used in that time period. Really? Perhaps, you know, they were slight regional or class differences like our use of slang. You know, um, you know, a lot of words we use are not included in the official dictionary. Right. We pick up the story where we learn that Lucas Wayneman, who is communicating from the 16th century, has been using an alias, and his true name is Thomas Harwarden. H-A-R-W-A-R-D-E-N, pronounced Harden. He was arrested and then allowed to return home under a sheriff's supervision in order to understand and get more information regarding the Leem's boishja. We also learn that Debbie, Ken's girlfriend, has been able to see Thomas in her dreams and communicate by visiting him in the past in her dream state. Debbie got a puppy naming him Lucas, which made 2109 very upset, saying there could not be two Lucases in the same place, and strangely afterwards, the puppy got sick and died. Also, Thomas sends a message that his housemaid and cook, Catherine, who is only 14 years old, has been taken and burnt to death for being an unclean soul or AKA witch. Oh, wow. Catherine. Poor Catherine. goes out to you. Rest in peace. It is, it is August 1985 back in the cottage. Ken and Debbie's main concern are the poltergeist attacks, which were now taking vengeance out on the BBC computer. Two separate occasions, they had each witnessed the computer moving around on the plant stand it was sitting on. A week later, the computer disappeared but was found sitting with the plant stand, including all of its cables in their bathroom. Hmm. To me, that's just smart placement. I mean, (laughs) it's it's perfect (laughs) private place for reading text, right? (laughs) Sure. There didn't seem to be any damage done to the machine, but they did notice a message written in chalk on a marble countertop. It was thought to be from 2109 or the poltergeist. The message said, quote, one more chance, measure frequency by plus two energy, comma, what else other than sound and light, end quote. Shortly after receiving the message, a loud crash sent them running to see the disk drive completely damaged on the floor, and the computer was halfway off the plant stand balancing precariously. Wow. Yes. Knowing the computer could not be used until the disk was repaired, they left out a paper and pencil hoping to receive more messages like the one in chalk. Ken and Debbie wanted to know more about the poltergeist, so they borrowed a new disk drive and hoped to receive a message, and they did eventually get one saying, silence, before the storm. First, silence. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is weird. Oh, I will say that um, for those who can't remember the first part of Vertical Plane, Thomas Harden is writing a book on his own end in the 16th century, which which is pretty cool. In which he is doing that in a way that's scary because he could be um, accused of witchcraft like his house girl. Right, right. So anyway, I feel that that um, is a very cryptic message. Silence before the storm, first silence. Ken wanted to know if they had any control over the poltergeist and if they could get them out of their place. He got a reply on the computer saying that they could try to hold back as best as we can. And then 2109 cryptically said, quote, sorry, you find us so friendly, end quote. Does that mean 2109 is amused by the poltergeist activity and is upset they haven't abandoned the house out of fear? I think that's an interesting comment. Is he causing it? Or is he causing it? And yet later in the book, 2109 swears he's kind of outside of this poltergeist activity and can help it. So 
One question I had, is the poltergeist activity acting up because Debbie and Thomas are both sensitives and at this time are super emotional? Mm -hmm. Debbie over the loss of her puppy and Thomas over the loss of Catherine, his housemate. Ken expresses his dislike for the riddles and odd messages that he thinks comes from 2109. But on further communication, 2109 does say that the poltergeist is interfering in their communication. Oh, really? Yes. And the communication between them all will need to be halted until things, quote, cool down, end quote. Worried that they wouldn't be able to help their friend Thomas in time for his trial, 2109 reassured them that time would stand still for Thomas relative to their time in order for them to have the break and then pick back up where they left off in their communication. So they all agreed to take a two-month break from using the computer to allow the paranormal activity to calm down. I think the most fascinating part of this story are the messages received from 2109. Mm -hmm. Ken's friend Peter also prefers to communicate with 2109, and he was curious how these timelines occurred and sent him a message inquiring as to how it is all possible. Let's take a look at some of the things 2109 claims. Quote, If a person is to physically travel in time, then they must take the living place of a person at the point of destination and vice versa. Imagine a set of scales that are perfectly balanced with pebbles. To remove a pebble from one dish to the other and keep this perfect balance, you must instantaneously remove a pebble from the other dish and replace them in reverse order. You perhaps will bump other pebbles in the dish, but the vital balance is still kept. If someone is brought in from another dimension, then again the same procedure applies. It made me wonder if demonic possessions are just time-traveling humans who need to take the living place of a person in the other time in order to experience it, and when the transfer is rejected, then the person is physically harmed or perhaps tormented. Hmm, yeah. Isn't good, that crazy? It's a good theory. So mm -hmm. weird. 2109 also states that matter will not, as we know it, ever travel in time. Why? Because we're too dense? Perhaps because the amount of energy that would take would be too much? Maybe in the future, they will take the thought image or projection of an object and recreate it as a more solid hologram. Maybe creating a copy of yourself, which would exist in both places at the same time, so that the scales are equally balanced. That might mean that clones will be able to time travel. Hmm. Or we will all be in line to get our own personal time traveling clones. Cool. Mine will be a tad taller and be able to win a staring contest. <laughs> Thanks, Elon Musk. Thank you, Elon. <laughs> and obviously would have to weigh a lot less than me to, <laughs> to get through that much of um, space and time. <laughs> Make a um, tiny version of yourself. A little like that fit side. in my pocket. Yeah, there you are, Carol. Awesome. You exist now in both places. <laughs> Go tell me what the other worlds are like and come yes, back. Yes, please. 2109 also indicated, quote, we are not in control of this experiment, end quote. So 2109 is more than one person. What if, Holly, 2109 is the AI convergence like Skynet and the oh. hive mind <laughs> is self-aware, traveling the vertical plane through technology and oh. electricity? I thought you were going to say, what if it's NASA? I'm like, oh, then you're like, no, what if it's AI? I'm yeah. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> That's way worse. <laughs> 2109 makes a reference about Thomas, saying he's a man living in the 16th century, but unknown to him, he is not quite what he seems to be. Well, what do you think he is? A heretic. 
<laughs> yes, a heretic. He's a clone, of course. Okay. No, I'm kidding. 2109 also has trouble contacting the man called one or knowing exactly who it is. Because one is not part of the AI hive mind. Maybe, um, you know, maybe one is actually an alien because he is green. Wow. He, okay. Well, he was green. He was green when they saw him and he dropped off the light box. Yes. Okay. I know this. This story is so far out there. I mean, it's just I so think bizarre. That Tom and Debbie <laughs> and Nikolai did a lot of drugs. Yes, a lot of drugs. But it wasn't the '60s. It was the '80s There's during that time. Drugs in the '80s. <laughs> Before the paranormal activity ramped up to its highest level, and they all decided to put the computer away, the Society for Psychical Research was invited by Ken Webster to conduct their own in-depth investigation at the cottage. John Stiles, its case officer, sent John Bucknell and Dave Welch to interview Ken, Debbie, and their friends in order to catch the culprit who they think was somehow accessing the computer while they were all out of the home. There was a common wall and roofline shared with the other unit, but theirs was the end one of the row. They sealed all the windows and doors while also planting traps outside to catch anyone who tried to leave or enter from outside. They concluded from their first discussions that the messages are received mostly when Debbie is present in the home without Ken. Loud noises and Ken's presence also seem to interfere with the messages being received. The team does not show much interest in Thomas Harden's communication story or the poltergeist activity in the home. Instead, they focus all their attention on the messages from 2109. David and John sit with Debbie on a couch in the living room after using the computer to type up a series of 10 questions addressed to 2109. Ken is sent away from the house, hoping a message will be sent back in a timely fashion. Only the investigators know what the questions are, and they quickly delete the message on the computer after it is sent. It is thought that if they receive a message back answering their questions, it will be proof that Debbie and Ken could not be committing the hoax. If someone was creating the messages in 16th century style, it would be very difficult to do it quickly. While security at the cottage was not up to modern day standards, there was never any evidence of anyone having entered the home. And to that end, the messages were still sometimes received while they were all in the house hmm. and more rarely, but at, at times received in as little as 10 or 20 minutes. When Ken was out of the cottage, he often was visiting friends when messages were received. These alibis like Peter Trindle and John Cummins could attest for Ken's whereabouts. Ken also borrowed different computers from the school, so it would have been pretty hard to tamper with all of the hardware. And nothing could be saved on the computer itself except to a floppy disk. There was no network or any way of sending the messages remotely. At the time, they did not have modems. The Society for Psychical Research took the computer away to be examined by an engineer for any bugs, and it was proved clean. But when they plugged it in, they could not make the computer send or receive any of the messages until its return to Webster's home. They also tried bringing in their own computer to see if 2109 would reply on it, but no answers to their questions were given. The team of researchers came over a period of three different time frames. The first visit ended with no messages received. The second visit was just as disappointing. 2109 was still communicating, but not answering the question, saying there was a disruption in the first message sent, and someone must have been standing too close to the computer. 
After sending more questions, a message was eventually sent back after a long period of time, and it appeared to be from 2109 indicating he did not like the questions asked because the answers would come at a great cost. Later, it was found to be questions pertaining to solving some upcoming astrological events and unsolved theories and equations like Fermat's Last Theorem. The answers received were evasive, vague, and only frustrated everyone because of the creepy cost it implied. Huh. 2109's message stated, Let the man who is willing to lose body, soul, and mind step forward to receive the answers. Isn't that creepy so as sounds, hell? sounds like he's saying, we'll give it to you, but you're going to kill yourself with the information. Isn't that weird? It is weird. 2109 would then taunt the investigator, David, saying he would surely not have any problem doing that. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> David, without any explanation, just didn't show up one day. Huh. And instead, John brought in a new investigator with him, Nick Sowerby-Johnson whom 2109 is super suspicious of and doesn't like. Mm. There are a few more back-and-forth bantering cryptic messages with 2109 that amounts to nothing. The psychical research team is done, and they promise to write up their report for Ken and deliver it when it is finished. However, no report was ever filed or delivered, and when Ken tried to follow up with the case officer to find out what was taking so long, he was told John Bucknell had left the SPR in 1986, and Dave Welch and Nick Sowerby Johnson, they were never members of the research team. <laughs> what? Da, da, da. What the It's hell? the Twilight Zone. So they do, were do, investigating do, do, from do, do, another do, do, do. parallel dimension or something? It was just weird. Huh. Interesting. In December of 1985, a local paper, the Chester Observer, ran a story regarding the Doddleston messages and got a hold of the Society for Psychical Research to find out any conclusions of their investigation. The article covered almost a full page of the newspaper, and the SPR said that their investigation could not make any conclusions. As to the paranormal issues, they said everything was probably caused by human agencies, and the message could not be proven authentic. Someone or something was doing it, but they could not explain how it was done. The BBC also ran a story and interviewed Laura Wright, a lecturer at Lucy Cavendish College, who was given a photocopy of the book to review. She chose one 500-word sample to review. There was no randomization of the messages, and she concluded the style of writing was within one decimal place of being Thomas Harden and Ken Webster. Huh. So, really yeah, she determined that they are one and the same. Okay. However, Holly, no yeah. similarity between them to that level existed out of that one sample. And Laura had said she could not conclude anything by just that sample text, but the BBC cut that statement out. Of course it did. And yes, and later Laura did admit she was told not to discuss any findings or analysis with Peter Trendle or any other witness they were interviewing so that there would be a gotcha element of surprise when presenting their findings. <laughs> well, this is all good t TV drama. I mean, that's yeah. you got to do that for yeah. good TV ratings, yeah, right, right? right. So the BBC has since issued a formal apology for its treatment of this case and all witnesses involved. Hmm. But meanwhile, the two-month time away to allow the cooling off of emotional energies and paranormal interference finally came to an end. In January of 1986, they set up the BBC microcomputer again to communicate with Thomas. 
2109 encourages them to find a more qualified investigator and suggests they contact a man by the name of Gary Rowe, who, according to 2109's research of the man's background, is more qualified in his knowledge of how future science works hmm. and would understand the proofs 2109 would offer. Hmm. Okay. I think this is super funny that 2109 is doing his own research on people. <laughs> right. It's pretty funny. It's like, what? it's like totally what I imagine AI doing if they were aware. Right. I can't like, remember. Did 2109 ever say he's from the year 2109? No, he oh, never did. He never says where he's from. No, we just assume it. Right. Okay. Yeah. But he does say we, we, when he talks sometimes. So it's more than just one thing talking. Okay. Okay. Gary, get this, Holly, was a UFO enthusiast. That's who 2109 is recommending they oh, get in touch so with. so aliens. So you'd be a big fan. Yeah. yeah. However, when Gary shows up with his equipment, hoping to receive signs of fluctuating energy or a message, he's disappointed. The following day, Gary asks if he could leave a sealed envelope for 2109 instead of using the computer. The envelope disappears from the kitchen where they left it, and a message appears answering him on the computer. It insinuates that Gary is familiar with their work in Canada, and that 2109 can send him unstamped mail at his geographical location in Riles, England. In the first part of the vertical plane, um, there was an incident that 2109 says happened similar to what's happening in 1985. Mm -hmm. Um in Canada in the year 1941, but he uh -huh. doesn't elaborate on what that is. Okay. And we know that's the start of the world war. So like probably didn't get recorded when we're all in a world war, you know? Yeah. So it would be interesting to find anything similar back in that time, but right. I haven't seen anything to that effect. 2109 instructs Ken or Debbie to print out his message and take it to Gary without reading it to him. Well, as if they wouldn't read it. Come on. <laughs> I would totally read it. Yeah, to of course. I wouldn't follow instructions yeah. like that. So anyway, they say they do as commanded and they meet up with Gary and Rills or Riles and he reads the letter with frustration and tells them that 2109 better come up with answers in six days with a direct answer to his questions or he's done with this investigation. Goodbye. Goodbye to you <laughs> and you and you. There were several more exchanges of sealed letters between 2109 and Gary Rowe, who would not give much feedback on any of their communications. And despite promising a full report on his investigations and conclusions, only told them that they needed to be further along in their beliefs and understanding before he could even try to explain. Well, how stuck up and stuffy of him. <laughs> I'm too smart Very British. You. Very British. <laughs> <laughs> Gary has never given them a report on his findings or what transpired in those sealed communications. However, I have found several correspondences from Gary Rowe to curious posters and fans of the story on forum boards. He speaks to them as if he believes that there is something more going on than just a hoax. And he also implies that in the book, specifically messages from 2109 hold many clues regarding how our universe works, how time travel happens, as well as the future possibility of finding Thomas Harden's book. Specifically, he states that there was a misprint in the first edition where chapter seven was inserted again between chapter 23 and chapter 24, but it was not a mistake. Gary also speaks in riddles, much like 2109, talking about Chaldean cipher codes. 
I don't have the original edition, so I don't have an opinion on this really because the second edition doesn't have this error. Speaking of errors, the first message from Lucas in reply to what date it is, he responds with March 28th, 1521. And King Henry VIII is married to Catherine. But then just a few messages later, he tells them that Erasmus passed in 1533. Yet he is from the year 1521. So I think they determined Lucas was actually writing from the year 1546, based on all the other information and text analysis of the time period. Perhaps Lucas referenced the wrong Catherine. I mean, Henry did marry three Catherines. It would be easy to be confused. Sure. Ken makes it very clear after his efforts with another investigation ending with no conclusions or report that he's completely done with the whole ordeal and is moving on with his life. He takes a new job in Manchester doing research and tries to enjoy the last few weeks communicating with Thomas Harden, who has informed them that he is allowed to be free, but has been encouraged to sell his property to a guy named Grobsner. The sheriff and Grobsner inform Thomas that the people in town are now wary of him and will never let him be innocent, probably intending to, at the very least, burn down his farm and home. He will likely meet the same fate as his Catherine if he tries to stay in the village. Thomas tells them he is writing his book and will leave it for them to find in their near future. Thomas has reluctantly agreed to sell Manor Cottage to Grobsner, who gives him three weeks before he has to vacate his residence. So this part of the story matches up too conveniently for wrapping up the loose ends of why Ken is wanting to move on with his life. Mm. He's taking a new job, after all, and moving out of Manor Cottage. What is the likelihood that this would also be the case for Thomas? And yet, what if Ken and Thomas are the same person? I know this is going as far as you can get into crazy land, but hear me out. What if Ken is the reincarnation of Thomas, or Thomas is somehow a twin soul or connected to Ken that his life mirrors his life in similar ways? Could Ken have parallel realities existing, wherein some of them he is a man living in the 16th century named Thomas, and because they accidentally are living in the same place, caused a grand paradox to occur in the time continuum. Ken is also being ridiculed in 1985, and many people don't believe him. What's going on, you know, with his paranormal experiences? He's being accused of pulling a hoax. And Thomas, in his timeline, tries to get people to believe that the light box is not of the devil, but it's even more serious for him because he's now accused of witchcraft, right? Right. And maybe this explains also why Thomas is linked with Debbie and like Ken has intense feelings and possible love for her. Okay. Which I didn't really love triangle. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. I didn't really, you know, cover that a lot, but in her dreams, they kind of get close and visiting each other in the dream world. So she has sex dreams. I don't know if they have sex dreams, (laughs) but you know, cause she has to be a very proper maid back then. Right. Um, But several friends and former students of Ken Webster have communicated in online forums a testimony to his character, discussing that he in no way would pull such a sham. He is described as a very serious person, not one to lie or make up stories, saying a teacher would not want to be the subject of ridicule. One theory that Peter Trindle thought would be a possibility is that Ken was projecting his own thoughts and having them manifest on the computer as an alternate ego of himself. He actually at one point tells 2109 his theory, and 2109 makes fun of him, saying, why would Ken then argue with himself and read items on the computer he dislikes? (laughs) Well, I think it would be like a good higher self-counseling session, right? (laughs) Maybe having the argument of, computer, mirror, mirror, tell me all. 
Mm. But is Ken a tormented soul? Hard to know. He definitely wasn't passionate about teaching, but was generally happy with his cars and girlfriend. However, in the book, several times, Ken talks about wanting to escape and becoming weary, old, and not like himself. The last message received from Thomas Harden was on March 21st, 1986. Quote, One day you will all sit down at my table for wine and meat by the river in Oxford, where we shall read each other's books and laugh. In your time, my book is old, but I shall not go to God until it is written, and we will all be truly embraced. My love to you all. I shall await you in Oxford. End quote. Did he find out he was a vampire or something? How is that going to happen, Holly? The reference to the wine. Yes. Actually, it's blood. Yes. I got it is, that too. It is blood and the body of Christ they're sure. eating. They're communing together. Yeah, but they are. Some fans of the book think that Thomas Harden is an astral spirit living out his life in the astral plane and can't die. Hmm. He's the ghost haunting them. But that doesn't explain why 2109 and 1 are involved. This book has so many incidents and conversation, it is hard to keep track of it all. I didn't cover many of the incidents, and there are photographs of actual writing they captured from Thomas, which is very unique and artistic. Yeah. Definitely not easy to reproduce. You showed me a picture on the last episode, it was and it was really crazy. Yeah. In one incident, they found strange drawings in chalk on their floor, which were identical to alchemical symbols used by alchemists. Oh, cool. People have put forth the idea that Lucas Wayman, the teacher of Thomas, whose alias Thomas took after his mentor died, was perhaps an alchemist. And Thomas himself also practiced some of the art. In one dream, Debbie saw that Thomas had herbs in his hat and he had her make candles for him. Peter Trindle, in analyzing the text, also came across the occasional alchemical term like the word quintessence. He also wondered if Thomas was secretly practicing alchemy. Maybe this aspect made him a target for paranormal entities to come into his home and create havoc or made him likely to accept being part of an experiment. We never find out what experiment 2109 and 1 are doing, and that is a huge disappointment for me. Yeah. It's bullshit to read yeah. that entire book and not know. And not get to the end of that. Yeah. yeah. To me, the only thing that will sway me from thinking this is a grand hoax is finding that damn book Thomas Harden supposedly left for us to find. Yeah. It must be at the Oxford Library, right? <laughs> Why wouldn't he give them hints of a location at least? 2109 said it is in a secure place, but that doesn't really help. Some think the opening riddle to the book is the key to finding it with the mouse and cat poem. Many churches in the UK have animals carved into them. Lych Gate or Lyke Gate, L-Y-C-H, has a porch and carved into the timber pillar is a mouse. Maybe that is pointing to where Thomas hid the book because he was a church vicar at one point in his life. 21 did have the last word saying there would be another person to come who would be of help. Also, Thomas Harden did die shortly after completing his book, and it shouldn't take too long for someone to find it. But the book was written in Latin with the help of a friend he met in Oxford. Mm. The inscription will read, quote, me writes this in the hope that my fellows will one day find this book. Then may other lands be not so distant, end quote. There is no need for you to write back as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation, 2109. Oh, cool. Ken Webster's conclusions on the whole experience was that it was some type of time slip occurring. He said that there are always just two camps of people after they read his experience. One camp always lumps everything together as a demonic activity. Mm. And the other camp always tries to prove this is just another example of life after death. 
saying Thomas was a ghost in their home and in their computer. He was still living on his own reality despite the centuries in between. But I think there's a third camp too, Holly. Mm-hmm. Aliens. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that quantum computers will become commonplace, like the D-Wave computer that's now in existence, where it makes all kinds of predictions and possible likely outcomes using algorithms. Another strange incident also happened in 1984 to a gentleman named Bowden who experienced paranormal activity and strange messages on his computer in the Black Forest region of Germany. The computer sent a mysterious message with a prediction of his own death and the death of his friend. Hmm. He was so freaked out, it drove him to drink, especially (laughs) after his friend died on the same date and manner the computer message predicted. Oh, shit. Thankfully. The date of his own demise came and went without event, and the matter was no more troubling to him. He probably avoided whatever it said it was going to happen to him. He probably said, okay, I'm going to stay locked in my room all day. Yeah. Isn't that freaky? That is freaky. In July of 1987, Ken Webster received one last message. It was sent in the mail from Luxembourg and had a computer printout of a message saying, quote, contact Ken Webster during the holidays. Much important. Thank you. 2105, end quote. (laughs) The senders, Maggie and Jules Harsh Fishbacks, had received, or Fishbox, had received a series of messages from someone they called the technician, or 2105. Wow. They had heard of Ken Webster's experience from the article written in the paper and hoped Ken would set up the BBC computer again to find out what and where this mysterious communication might uncover. Ken declined, though, saying he didn't want to start anything up again. A couple of things I just want to mention in closing. The fireplace. It has to be a portal. Mm -hmm. One came through the fireplace, initially delivering the light box. Yeah. And Debbie, in her dreams with Thomas, saw herself stepping out of this fireplace when she visited him. Also, the kitchen always bothered me. The computer was set up in the kitchen at the manor cottage, and I felt that if there was any sort of hoax, it would have to be done in the kitchen. There would have to be an access directly from it to another unit. The book does not go into detail about the neighbors, but that is the very first thing I would do. Mm. I would go up to my neighbors and interview them and see who might be experts in linguistics and 16th century literature. (laughs) I also wonder if the renovation of the townhome Maybe perhaps an underground tunnel or secret space was opened up that would allow someone to access it. If so, perhaps someone who found it wanted to play a trick. But for what motive? None really jumps out at me. Hmm. The whole effort going on for so long without getting caught is hard to imagine. The span of years from the first publication of The Vertical Plane has had many discussing the possibility of finding Thomas Harden's book. Many feel like Gary Rowe that there were clues given by 2109. Some think a Chaldean cipher code is hinted at. Perhaps alchemical symbols that were drawn on the floor were also clues. I would like to propose that the book was buried with Thomas Harden in his tomb in Oxford. Let's consult the cards, shall we? We would need to find someone to find his tomb over there and start digging. Holly, I know you love cemeteries. I do. That's true. What is your thoughts on this? Oh, my God. It seems to me that at some point in time whether it's people or aliens or somebody, will figure out time travel and they'll start to gently explore it, but they're doing it in a very careful way by just letting us communicate via messages back and forth, but they're not necessarily physically. I mean, they, they one showed up in 15 whatever to see Thomas and left that light box. 
that's a physical visitation, but the rest of it is very like they don't want to fuck things up and they're right. staying away. I don't know. It's very interesting. I mean, who knows if, if time travel yeah. can become possible, um, there could be people from the future who've been here many times. I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like it could bring about a whole new perspective on poltergeist activity. Sure. Like yeah. maybe when yeah. things occur in homes, maybe yeah. it's the time continuum being interrupted for right. some reason. Right. Yeah. Whether through emotions or whatever. Yeah. Um, but we'll just have to hope that book is found. It would be I really know, cool. Be and I think it would be so cool to see if this was really true. Well, they predicted but. that it would be found. Mm-hmm. So maybe it will be someday. If people maybe. know what it is, though, like they'll yeah. be like, oh, it's some weird book that was from yeah. a long time ago. But, you know, it is just really hard to believe the story. There's just so many moving parts. It's That's, hard to keep track of it. It's why stories like that that are hard to believe are usually the ones that are true. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're like so out there. Nobody could have sat down and thought this up. You're like, come on. Yeah. So no. I know this was a long episode, but let's do the cards. Okay. Uh, we're going to do a reading on where the book is. Yeah, where we think the cards are saying the book is. Okay. We'll be right back. We actually did two questions. The first one being, is it a hoax? Yeah. Right? Is this whole thing just one big hoax? Um, so we did a spread on that. Then we also did a spread on where we find the book. So the first spread, I'm using the Smith Weight Tarot Deck Centennial Edition. And that, of course, is by Arthur Way and, um, and uh, Pamela Coleman Smith. So um, I got... The uh, Nine of Pentacles, the Fool, and the Page of Pentacles. So there's a couple different ways that I'm going to look at this. The Nine of Pentacles, that's somebody who's got confidence, skill, education, ability to do something. Now, this could be 2109, who is like, I'm going to do this experiment, and that's what I do. I do these wacky experiments, or it could be Ken. I'm a confident person. I'm doing well for myself. I'm living a good, solid life. Then we go into the fool. So if it's 2109, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna deal with people from centuries ago who aren't going to be very smart and have no idea what's going on. And it's going to be very interesting to manipulate them with information and kind of make them into fools. Yeah. Uh, if I'm Ken, then I'm probably thinking I can pull this off and fool everybody into <laughs> the hoax that I'm about to perpetuate. Okay, I apologize, Ken, but... <laughs> You got some disbelievers still, Sorry. still after Sorry. all of that. But maybe, no. but you know, yeah. or, or he is really experiencing something that he has no idea what's going on, right? So we end with a page of pentacles. Now, if you're a 2109, that means you conducted your experiment. You've learned some things about the past and the people in it, and you've been paid for your services and you're still building your skill set. If you're Ken, then you're uh, learning something new about the future and something that you never thought you would learn. And maybe you're trying to write a book to make some money. And maybe this is a scam and you're just trying to make some money. I kind of don't lean towards that, though. I think this is more of an educational experience in which somebody conducting this, this experiment is getting paid and there's education to be had. A little bit, not a lot. There's a little bit of education, just a, a gleam of it to get people started down this road. 
And that's where I come from is that I think it's a legitimate experiment. Carol, what was your deck and what did you get? Okay. So thank you, Holly. My deck was the Cosmovisions Guide um, and it's written by James R. Eads. Um, it's a little bit different deck. It doesn't correspond exactly to all the tarot traditional um, cups, pentacles. Um, it has some extra cards in it as well. But so in the cards that I drew, I drew the crow. In the traditional tarot, um, I believe it's the one card which would correspond to the magician. Yeah. And the magician is all about manifestation, but the magician can also be about deception. Yes. It can also be pulling, you know, the rabbit out of the hat and illusions, right? Right. So that's the first card. The second card is eight of trees. It corresponds to the eight of pentacles in traditional tarot. And that is having special skills. So that kind of mm -hmm. hits on the same um, meaning that you have in mm -hmm. your deck. Yeah. Somebody that is very skilled. It could mean Debbie has the skills to manifest a time paradox that this could be happening. What I find most interesting about my spread is the third and last card, the mm. seven of embers. It shows a phoenix surrounded by flames sitting on a book. Yeah. And yeah. I have to read the interpretation because it is so cool. Hang on. This card corresponds to the seven of wands, self-preservation and defense, hmm. protecting something at all costs. The self-preservation of the book of the Phoenix is unique. It's a magical thing. It's existed long before time. And though its defenses will likely preserved unscathed, Many challenging times are to come. If this card shows itself in a reading, it is time to use wit to protect and defend yourself. Something important needs to be surrounded by protection. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. So um, maybe the book was written as a way to preserve his memories and to make it um, something that will endure over time if science comes out with new discoveries yeah. he can say hey i was the first to propose this yeah i'm not sure all of it is really factual i do believe in the paranormal things that were going on in the house i saw the pictures i saw the writing right it's pretty crazy i do think that if messages were lost and deleted that you know it's easy to fill the blanks in with better drama better sure. stories yeah Help sell um, a new book. theories, yeah. right? Help sell a book. Yeah. So uh, the verdict is a little bit of hoax and a little bit of truth. Okay. I, I think that's what we're looking at here. Yep. Um, our next question: Did the book exist, and will we and will we find it someday? I drew the nine of embers, the ten of birds, and the ace of lotuses. The nine of embers corresponds to the nine of wands, and it says it's the last stand, resilience, not giving up before it's over. Okay. And I think that really holds true with everybody's hope that this book exists and mm. really wanting it to be found. Yeah. The 10 of birds is is corresponding to the 10 of swords and that's really destructive card. It can mean that the book might be in a place of complete stress. Maybe it's trapped, maybe it's hidden um under or, or underground or burdened, you know, mm -hmm. could be even in the Vatican. I mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. Or it could mean that the book actually didn't get um, it was destroyed. It yeah. didn't last. I mean, books like that, it's been 400 years. Yeah. So somebody would have to preserve the book and know what they were doing in order for it to last to this time period. Right. And then the last card is the Ace of Lotus, which to me 
is a card of moving on. It's mm -hmm. new beginnings. It's a new path forward. Either yeah. the book is discovered because the first card says continue mm -hmm. to look. Mm -hmm. And it means that we have new discoveries and we're on a new path from reading it. Mm -hmm. um, or it just says people have moved on. Yeah. They're just going to move on from this and continue. So the cards aren't clear that it's going to be discovered because in tarot, you can interpret it a couple of different ways. Yeah. My bet is that it didn't survive okay. over time. I just don't see how it could. That's fair. And people are moving on. Yeah. So I agree with you. I don't think the book will be found. I drew the two of swords, then the moon, and then the eight of swords. So the two of swords to me shows that there is a defensiveness around the book. It's been hidden. No one can see it or find it cloaked in darkness or in this card, the uh, person sitting is two big, heavy swords uh -huh. that she's crossed in front of her and she's got a blindfold on. So it's not open to be seen if it exists. The moon card is all about confusion, anxiety, uncertainty. You're walking a path in the woods at night. You can't see anything except for the light of a moon. There could be all sorts of creepy creatures in the woods around you oh. that you cannot see. But you just stay one foot in front of the other. But it's very unclear. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. Everything's shrouded in mystery. So you don't really have an idea if what you're looking for is even real. If it even survived right. oh, or yeah. anything. Because if somebody found it, would they even know it's a valuable book? Exactly. They, they may not even have any idea what it is. And then I end with the Eight of Swords, which I think is, um, you know, basically a card of if the book does exist, it is under lock and key somewhere and yeah. you're not allowed access to it or the people searching for it are so mentally stressed out about finding it that they can't find it anyway because they're just too twisted up in riddles or whatever. Yeah. They just can't do it. They're, they're creating too much mental anguish around finding the book as it is. Or like you said, it didn't survive anyway. And so this is just a, a fruitless endeavor, a, a futile endeavor anyway. So yeah. So for now, it doesn't seem uh, like yeah. it's going to be found. None yet. of these cards would, mm -hmm. all of these cards would tell me no. It, there's just too much ambiguity around it for it to actually be discovered be or to even if it is discovered, no one's people that find it aren't going to know what the hell it is. That's my my perspective. And if it got into the wrong hands, they wouldn't want it to be discovered. Right. If it has, you know, damning evidence against the church or something like that. Sure. That would, you know, confuse humanity. All yeah. aliens are real. Right. You know? Right. Thank you. I know this was a long episode. Hopefully you still found <laughs> it entertaining. Hopefully and you stuck with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Good night. Bye. But anyway, I really feel like poor Thomas Harden, if he had only had these mnemonics or rhymes, he could have kept his King Henry the wives straight. <laughs> Here we go. King Henry VIII, to six wives he was wedded. One died, one survived, two divorced, two beheaded. But my favorite, Boleyn and Howard lost their heads. Anne of Cleves, he would not bed. Jane Seymour gave him a son, but died before the week was done. Aragon, he did divorce, which just left Catherine Parr, of course. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. Very cute. <laughs> so if you were a plumber and you'd like to advertise on our show, please get a hold of us at firesidephantoms at gmail.com. Because you know. Because we it's know hot. where to stick it. <laughs> That's what she said. It's hot and pluggy in here. It's hot and pluggy. <laughs> <laughs>
So we pick up the story where we learn that Lucas Wayneman was it. <laughs> this is going to be a bitch. Sorry, honey. This is going to be a bitch. A <laughs> bitch. These alibis like Peter Trindle and John Cum. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> These- a lot of bloopers. A lot of bloopers. These alibis like Peter Trindle and John Cummins couldn't attack. I can't say your fucking name. <laughs> Do you want a shot of whiskey or maybe some margarita drink? We have margarita wine. As the flames die down, Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com, and you may hear it on a future episode.